Hey everybody, what's up? I'm Paige. I'm Chris. And this is Animates, uh, the podcast where we go way too in-depth into all of your favorite cartoons. And today we're going to be talking about Gargoyles, uh, the 1994 Disney classic. Um, maybe the only Disney cartoon that we're going to discuss that wasn't produced for the Disney Channel. This actually predates the Disney Channel and was produced for their Saturday morning cartoon block that aired on ABC uh, I, during that time period. I was the per- I was the person who pushed hard to watch this show, and this I think is I mean Paige obviously was very open to the idea, but. Mm-hmm. I, I was sitting there, we were thinking about the shows we were going to talk about for Disney, and I vividly remembered, hey, I remember watching Gargoyles, and I know that it wasn't on WB or Cartoon Network or Nick, so I, I just by process of elimination knew that it had to be produced on Disney or by Disney. Mm-hmm. So for this... This is going to be a trend where I'm like, hey, we should totally watch this action-y show. Mm-hmm. And because yeah. and, Paige and I shared a lot of cartoons, but I probably watched more cartoon, like, or comic book style cartoons. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with, like, gendered marketing. Um, and with this one, a little bit age, you know, we've I've talked about before how there are, like, Certain moments, especially when you're a small child, where a difference of two or three years actually really matters. So, like, my boyfriend is is Chris's age. He graduated from high school the same year Chris did. And he also vividly remembers Gargoyles and loving that show as a kid. But by the time I was really watching cartoons, you know, it wasn't really... Or I, or there were more networks that were dedicated to shows for small children that I was watching on Saturday morning. And so, because I was born in 93, so I kind of missed the Gargoyles thing, both by being a little bit younger and because I'm a girl and it was a little bit more, adventure shows tended to be a little bit more boy marketed. Well, and Gargoyles too definitely had this heyday It wasn't Mm -hmm. running on, like, it wasn't syndicated for very long. No, very briefly. In fact, if I can look, let me grab the Wikipedia just for the episodes itself. I should be able to see the final, like, syndication date for some of the episodes. Um, No, it doesn't have a month. Wait, wait, yeah. No, not for this one. A lot of shows that'll show you their final, their original air date and like their final date aired in syndication, but this doesn't even have that. So that means me to believe that like it was either syndicated like incredibly briefly or like wasn't even syndicated at all. I mean, I, I obviously the show ran between the years that I was like seven and ten. Because that's when I remember watching the show, Mm -hmm. which would have been between 97 and 99. Yeah, so it must have have been still airing on, on like, ABC at that time because its actual air dates are 94 to 97. Yeah, so this show, I... 
I loved it as a kid. I, I never... This was one of those shows that I always hated to watch out of order, but it always was out of order. <laughs> and because it's because the show is heavily plot-driven, and a lot of cartoons weren't. Dexter's Lab, like, all the ones we've reviewed up to this point aren't plot-driven. Or if yeah, they are... Yeah, it's one of the most serial serialized shows we've watched. So, like, um, for listeners who, like, may not know... Um, in in discussion of uh, like television or even like like radio programming and stuff like that, uh, an episodic program is something where, for the most part, you can just watch any given episode as a self-contained unit. You don't really need to see it in the order it was produced or aired. Whereas something that's serialized is um telling a coherent story where you need to uh you know watch it in order and obviously cartoons similar to sitcoms kind of live in a little bit of a gray like a lot of cartoons live in a gray zone where you can watch an episode by itself and still enjoy it but maybe there will be multi-part episodes or there'll be callbacks or plot elements that last a whole season. And Gargoyles is very much like that. So I should, I'm about to get ahead of myself. So why don't we introduce the show, just some basic demographic info for those who are interested. Uh, This is part of our continuing block of Disney shows. So obviously it was produced by Disney, but it aired on ABC so kind of a weird little thing there. It was created by, if I can find this in my notes, because I apparently cannot write things <laughs> correctly. <laughs> uh, well, it was produced by Frank Parr, Greg Wiseman, Dennis Woodyard, and I can't find it. I cannot find who made it. This is amazing. Do you have that information page? Um, what what information exactly are you looking for right now? Who created the show? Um, I haven't been able to find that. It almost and the the little bit of information I had, it seems like it was pitched by a gro- group of people to like a producer who was trying at Disney who was trying to help create it as um, they were trying to produce sort of like more of a comedy. And then the team of writers that they brought in turned the concept, took the concept and turned it into the sort of like darker, more complex thing that we ended up with. So there wasn't really like a creator or a showrunner in the way that we're familiar with, with all of the other shows that we've watched. Like there was no like single auteur or anything. Uh, No, I am uh, upon a more uh, intensive search. And by intensive search, I mean, I put who created gargoyles (laughs) into Google. (laughs) Uh, I can see that it was uh, Weissman and power. The two that I just mentioned as producers, they're listed Mm -hmm. as the creators. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I was re- I was yeah reading an article um, about it, and it seems like it wasn't. It was a more of sort of an old school type Disney production than the kind of cartoons we're used to seeing with, you know, in the modern environment, especially on uh, 
Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network where it's like, you know, there is an animator and writer who creates the concept for the show and then runs the show. It was a little bit different than that. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like, unlike what we've seen with pretty much every other cartoon we've talked about to date, it doesn't seem like Power and Weissman were doing a lot of the writing. Uh, they were, no, no, not at they all. were doing like power was doing some directing, but other than that, the show had main sort of all like the, the biggest writers, for example, Michael Reeves and Brienne Chandler Reeves did the first season, which was only 13 episodes, but they wrote it. The, the quote unquote creators didn't where, when we watched Powerpuff Girls or Courage the Cowardly Dog, the showrunners did writing on those shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, I don't know, that's interesting to me that you have creators or people doing a lot of producing that didn't write. To me, that compartmentalized style feels more indicative of a bigger corporation. I don't know if that's yeah, true, absolutely. but it feels like that. Yeah. And you, you know, you have, um, you know, our, you know, Wikipedia will list people as like writers or directors in like the little synopsis area. If they did five or more episode uh, episodes and there's still a ton of people like there's like one, two, three, four, five, six people who wrote five or more episodes and one, two, three, four, five, like, again, uh, five people who directed five or more episodes. So there were, like, generally a lot more hands on this show than um, a lot of other shows that we've, you know, at least at the, like, high level of, like, you know, written by credits and directed by credits than some of the other shows that we've um that we've watched, which I think is really interesting because it maintains like a pretty cohesive feel. I think it definitely feels like there was somebody who was very specifically looking out for continuity and uh, like cohesion between with, within seasons or even between seasons, honestly, because once you watch through the second season, and you see all of the storylines that started out one way and were brought in at random times, but completely worked with a hundred percent continuity. There weren't any retconning issues. Somebody had to have been tracking, okay, here's where we're going to go with this. Or at the very least, they knew exactly what had happened previously. And they're like, oh, we can fit Macbeth in here. Or we can totally bring the Phoenix Gate back here. Or yeah, they here's... had like a really good show bible, basically. Yeah, and, and some of the plot points like Avalon were teased super early on. I mean, Puck is like season or episode three or something crazy early. Yeah, for sure. Um, but anyway, so the show aired on the Saturday morning episode block which is where I probably would have seen it for the most part. And the cast is really good. The cast, the voice actors were, I really like the voice acting in the show. And it's one of the things that I remember the most going into it. Yeah, 
it's really excellent voice uh, voice acting. And also, uh, if any of you have created a uh, animated drinking game, then you will surely take a drink at this moment because Tara Strong also lends her voice talents to the show. I don't think there's been a single show that we have watched so far that Tara Strong was not on. Though, granted, her voice was mostly for crying babies. Yeah, I mean, yes, she does do voices for crying babies a lot. But she did do voices, she did the voices for the Weird Sisters, um, or at least the child versions of the Weird Sisters. That's right, you're right. Now I do remember that. Uh (laughs) Also, I cannot remember the moment, but there's like a moment in the show where they have like a child yelling or something. I think it's the one where they're tricked. You know, they get tricked by the quarrymen by a yelling child. And I'm like, that's Helga. That's the voice of Helga Pataki. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that had to be really like a very early role for her, actually. And I wonder if this was an early role for Tara Strong, too. It would have been Tara Strong probably would have been doing voice acting work for Rugrats at about this time as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, we're gonna miss her when she stops showing up. Like, or does she still? I don't know. I, I is Tara Strong still in every cartoon? I don't look out for her. I'm um, pretty sure in modern cartoons. I'm pretty sure she's still around, but don't yeah. don't quote me on that. God we'll, bless, holding it down. Uh, so we we have an excellent cast here, and it's an ensemble show. It's an ensemble cast. There isn't like one main character. Um, so if you'll remember, we have, starting with the gargoyles, these creatures of the night, <laughs> we've got Goliath, who originally is the only named gargoyle, and he is voiced by Keith David and has one of the most distinctive parts, like voice acting parts in 90s cartoons. His oh, voice, sure. His voice is just immediate, it's, it's immediately recognizable. And it was very high quality. And he's shown up in movies and shows. I mean, he's all over the place with the stuff he that he's been in. He just has a very in. deep, like, rich voice. Like, a really recognizable, like, baritone. Well, and to yeah. this day, I cannot hear his voice and not think, oh, there's Goliath. That's yeah. that's the first thing. years ago, that's superstition the... and the sword rule. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think he does the intro... To the Americ to the dub of Princess Mononoke, if I remember oh, correctly. <laughs> I, I'm I'm almost a hundred percent sure that he does the intro monologue to Princess Mononoke. So I, I'm pretty sure he worked with Disney, like the company, to do quite a bit of stuff with them. Yeah. See, like, I think now that I've seen Gargoyles, he's going to be one of those actors that I recognize everywhere. And, like, what's funny is that most of the actors that I always recognize everywhere, I don't, I can't ever remember their names. I just recognize them by, like, the character that I know them best from. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So, like, Bender, um, Spongebob slash Ice King for me. Um, I think of him mostly as Ice King. Um... Yeah, and Bender slash Jake, you know. Uh, Sheriff Blubs is also in everything. Like, the main one that I know her by name is Tara Strong, just because she's in so much stuff. And I'm like, oh, it's that woman. Even before we did this show, I was like, I knew that it was Tara Strong. You know, because, like, you're like, oh, it's that woman. You look around, oh, it's Tara Strong. 
you know? Yeah, and I, 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 to this day, I still think of the characters they play and not their names. Just, I've oh, always done sure. that. I've always done that. So, Keith David voiced Goliath. And then the cast expands outward to all of these other gargoyles that survive with Goliath. And they all take on names of a place in New York City, because that's where they end up living. So Lexington, which you might remember if you watch the show, he's the tiny, nerdy gargoyle. Uh, he's voiced by Thom Adcox Hernandez. And interesting character, we have Hudson, the old, wise, mystic... Uh, things are changing! <laughs> gargoyle, like those darn kids... Gargoyle uh, is voiced by Ed Asner, which is a fairly famous name. Like, he did a lot of stuff uh, pre-80s. He also, by the way, Hudson is it's so funny because they, they grew up a thousand years ago in a world without TVs. And immediately the first thing that the old, the, the vampire or not vampire, the gargoyle that is like an old man does is when they come to the present, he immediately becomes a couch potato. Mm -hmm. Like he immediately picks up the old person stereotype of sitting in front of a TV all day. It's great. Um, <laughs> it's my favorite thing. We have Bill F Fagerbake. I'm I'm sure that I, I pronounced that wrong. Fagerbake? I don't know. It's very German-looking, and I'm sure it's not German either. Someone will probably yell at me. But well, yeah, he, I don't he know voices Patrick Starr. Oh, my God. Really? That makes sense. Did you not? Oh, my... Paige, did you I seriously really, not did, hear that? We did not. We were not a SpongeBob household. Okay. <gasps> I mean, I watched it, but not... How really. dare you? Well, you know what? We'll, we'll address this later. We're talking about gargoyles. Right now. <laughs> um, so he, he voiced Brooklyn, the, the uh, strong, kind, burly vamp... Uh, I keep wanting to say vampire. Uh, gargoyle. Gargoyle, right? He really likes food. He's goofy, uh, but he eventually grows into a very complicated and interesting. He's the one who's like the stereotypical books are important, kids. Please read. That episode made me feel a lot of things. Uh, we have, okay, so we have Elisa Maza. You'll remember her because she... I have a huge gay boner for Elisa Maza. She's a she's a bi style icon. Cuffed jeans, booties, bomber jacket. She was holding it down for us in the early nineties. Love Elisa Maza. <laughs> she um then I missed sorry, I missed another important gargoyle, Brooklyn. Mm. Brooklyn is sort of the uh I don't know. He's the moodiest. He's the most, like, it's very clear of the three, like, young gargoyles. They're very clearly teenagers. He's kind of like the Leonardo the of the gargoyles. 
Yeah, like he seems like the sort of oldest of the teenagers and he's the most likely to be like moody and a little bit, you know, have a little bit of a dark side to him. And then we've got Bronx, the dog. (laughs) Bronx is voiced by Frank Welker. Who voices also like all of the other dogs on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they have their resident dog voice actor. Yeah. Uh, the once lover turned main antagonist Demona is voiced mm-hmm. by Marina Sirtis. And then can we just? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go go ahead. This will be getting off topic from the voice actor, so let's finish this part. Uh, the one of the best villains in my animated experience is Xanatos. David <laughs> Xanatos. That name is just so good for a su- yeah. I don't know. He's villain, then he's an antagonist, and then he's an ally? Like it the I don't know. Xanatos is a complicated person. Well his motive The lines between good and bad are actually very complicated in this show. Pretty much no one is ever just like I'm a villain the whole time. I have no redeeming qualities. Like, everyone is sometimes an antagonist and sometimes an ally. Yeah, it's really... We'll talk about the complexity of the show, but that's one of the places where you, as a kid, you don't really get clear-cut villains except for most of the wolf pack. But that's... Yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, so so then we, there's another major character who never got, like, upgraded to series regular, even though she really was, was Fox. And uh, she was voiced by Laura Sangiacomo, who apparently her her name never appeared in any of the credits for any episode she worked on. What? What? Well, we. I don't we, know. I don't know the story about that. I'm just reading that right now. Well, she she deserves her due. Uh, yeah, also, excellent. in season two, we learned that uh, Goliath and Demona had a daughter, and that daughter is Angela, who's an excellent character as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, I mean, she kind of starts out a little bit as like sheltered, sheltered girl, but she, I don't know, she becomes a good a good character for us to probe the, like, how do you learn about the outside world sort of thing? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also a teenage bad, cool... badass teenage girl. Yeah. So, like, I just want to make sure that we get in the voice actors for some of the, like, big recurring char- characters um, because it's pretty cool. Like, Jim Belushi. Um, there were a couple of different people who voiced Fang, like the mutate Fang, um, but Jim Belushi was one of those people. Uh, Alan Cumming voiced John Castaway. Tim Curry voiced Anton Severius. Thank you, Tim Curry. God bless. Which that, <laughs> yeah, that character was great. And Tim Curry did an excellent job. I mean, he, yeah. how can he not? He's Tim Curry. He's Tim Curry. You know, and another legend, John Reese davies voiced Macbeth, um, which is why it was so excellent also. Um, so we just got, like, we have Cree Summer as Hyena, who's another. She showed up in other shows we've watched as well. Um, um, Paige. Susie is the weird sister. She's also a voice acting great. 
Oh, I was about to say, I have to correct you about the Weird Sisters, but you were specifically saying that it was the children Weird Sisters that was... Yeah, yeah. they appeared in their aspect as children. They were voiced by Tara Strong. Um, I mean, the, the, the cast is pretty much always good. There, there were some side goons that had sort of, sort of like wacky or not as high quality voice acting, but, um, I actually kind of love like the side character that I lovingly refer to as John Travolta voice guy. No, he Um, was great. His was great. Because I just love that there's just like a side character and the voice actor just decided I'm going to do Travolta in Welcome Back, Cotter, specifically like the voice Travolta does in Welcome Back, Cotter. And then they're just like, why don't we just keep having you on to do your Travolta voice (laughs) like over and over again? (laughs) Like that was that was the inside scoop. The inside story in the studio was they just kept writing him into parts to allow him to do the voice. Right. Oh, God. I love it. <laughs> I love that, like, sort of, like, fourth wall-breaking episode with the Travolta voice guy um, holding it down for us, the real hero. <laughs> yeah, snaps. Yeah. Snaps to him. So, um, okay. <laughs> you can go ahead. Um, I mean, we the, there's a huge cast, so we could get bogged down forever with guest stars and I mean all of that that good stuff but overall excellent excellent voice casting and and direction and I think just to speak on the quality of the animation before we get into content is I mean goddamn is Paige really hit at home when she talked about with me Sorry, I I, almost sounded as if she mentioned it previously, that this show gets favorable comparisons to uh, Batman, the animated series, because they were both like shows that were drawn on black paper with similar uh, styles for buildings and realistic backgrounds. I mean, Batman, the animated series did stuff that Gargoyles didn't. I'm not trying to say that they're the same, like, Batman has all this deco architecture. Anyway, point is, is that they're favorably compared Compared. to one another, not only for their art style, but also for the type of storytelling that they engaged in. But Mm -hmm. uh, going back, if I'm going to give a 100% honest review of Gargoyles, I think I was very pleasantly surprised at the consistent level of quality after the introductory five episodes of the show. The animation is also, if you look at the end credits, like it's, I don't know when this started to become like more standard in American animation. And and I can't, I want to say, so now a large number of cartoons a lot of the animation itself is outsourced to Korean animation studios. Um, And in this one, just looking at the names, the names looked Japanese to me. So it looked like there were either a lot of Japanese-American animators working on the show or that it was being outsourced to a Japanese animation studio for a lot of the stuff. And, like, honestly, I think you can really tell. It really, like... One thing that is really distinctive about Japanese animation, 
as compared to American animation is much heavier use of light and shadow. And there's a ton of that in this show that we just really haven't seen in really any of the other cartoons from even, you know, five, you know, five or five to eight years after Gargoyles was made. The show doesn't reuse any any scenes either. Mm-hmm. So that was something very common even in anime at the time. Like action anime oftentimes reused like the same exploding mech or the same fight, some of the same fight moves or charge scenes. Like they were they 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 to save costs, they would reuse as much as they could. And this show did not does not reuse animation except there was one moment. There was one instance in which I found a completely reused panel, and it was in the third season. Really? Where did you find the reused panel? It is when Xanatos' helicopter is flying up to the castle on top of the skyscraper. And it's the same scene from the intro. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you would expect that kind of scene for them to use that panel a lot. Because even in, um, like, live-action sitcoms, there will be, like, shots, like, like especially with exterior shots and stuff like that, where they'll just use the same one over and over and over again for something so common like that. There just wasn't a lot of filler animation, I think, is why. So when they're, when they're always doing something new that adds to the mm-hmm. scene, they can't reuse things, or at least they chose not to. So mm-hmm. I, I think that shows favorably on the show. The fight scenes flow pretty well. I mean, yeah. there are artifacts. There are definitely places where you can tell things are not as good as they could be, but I think, A, I was looking for it. I was actively mm-hmm. scrutinizing the quality of the show while I was watching it. So I think if you consider the fact that this was animated in 94 and 95 primarily, mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, it, the backgrounds look good, as good today as they did back then. Yeah, that, that you you see that it's really, really very good, which is why the third season was such a jarring transition for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 the third, se- the animation in the third season blows. I'm just going to, so here's a huge drop in animation quality. It's and so bad. I noticed is that like, Elisa becomes way more Disneyfied. Like we all know that women in Disney animation have really big eyes and very full lips and a hair that is a certain type of like bouncy, you know, and like she, her character model, her, her character model gets sexier, which is like saying something because like Elisa was always drawn as like an attractive woman. Well, and she just like, she, her eyes get bigger, her hair gets bouncier, her butt gets bigger, her lips get fuller, her facial expressions get poutier, and her walk gets slinkier in the third season. Yeah, and her um, 
Her shoulders and torso were already always pretty solid. Like, not... Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say, like, completely masculine, but she... She was always drawn as kind of, like, what I pictured to be, like, a tough New York mm-hmm. detective. She had... Yeah, for sure. Her, her physique gave off that impression. Like, I'm a badass, multi-ethnic... Uh... W- badass... And, yeah, absolutely. And it, that just kind of went away. And then everything is like the animation's choppy. The details are sometimes like off. You can tell where they laid layers on top of one another. Like it's just whatever happened, it's garbage. Yeah, and like I, something that I think that we'll start talking about a lot more when we talk about more adventure shows, and sh- certainly when we get around to like covering, you know, anime if we're covering any kind of anime that have combat in them, which a lot of them do, is that uh, combat scenes are where things can very quickly go wrong animation-wise because I need to be able to follow the fight. Like, if I don't know what's happening in the fight, you have failed. Like, you haven't clearly blocked and storyboarded the fight. You haven't translated that correctly to animation. I need to know exactly what's happening as I watch the fight. And in the first two seasons, I was really impressed because I always knew what was happening in the fights. And it became... We lost a little bit of that in the third season. Like, the, it just wasn't as clear. The fights weren't as coherent. So, overall... I, I would say the first two seasons have excellent animation quality. Mm-hmm. So um, let's get into some content of the show. Because I, I do want to say up front, as far as psychology goes, um, this is going to happen with other plot-driven shows. We just have less analysis to do on... I, I have less analyses to do on sending messages to like mm. an audience. I don't know. There, I have some, but I, I don't know. The plot takes up so much space and I think the economic part of it definitely has more than the other stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there are, you know, just like any other Disney show, you get a few episodes that are sort of like ham fistedly trying to make a point And I can think of two really good examples, and there's one that I really like, and there's one that I think is really hokey. (laughs) So there's the the reading is magic episode, which is super ham-fisted. I I love love that episode. Books are important, and I loved it. And we find out that, like, Hudson and um, Broadway are both illiterate, and... Like, both of them, through their separate, like, trials and travails in that episode, realized that, like, (coughs) pardon, the written word is all that stands between us and oblivion, you know, or that... um, Hey, that line made me... It hit it me. Was, I cried. I literally cried. <laughs> or, or basically that just like that, like reading is magic and then it can transport you to all kinds of other places and it gives you a connection to the past and that like reading is cool and important and that we should learn to read. Um, you well, know, and, and Brooke or Broadway's taught that as well. So it starts yeah, yeah, with Brooklyn, 
or Hudson hides the fact that he can't read a little bit and in shame. And Broadway is like, who the fuck needs to read? You can just go <laughs> do it, man. So very, very sort of like practical, very practical ish type person who's just like go out into the world and do it who needs imagination and then by the end yeah. of the episode broadway's like wow these this stuff was in the books this is amazing uh yeah. and and he and, learns that imagination is is magic you know yeah and and um brooke Bro hudson is taught to read by none other than a blind man who's like mm -hmm. reading is so important i learned braille because it was so important yeah also great character he shows up a few times love hudson's boyfriend yeah um, <laughs> he's got a dog and he can't see hudson so he doesn't know that he's a gargoyle but then later you find out he's like i fucking knew you were a gargoyle hudson like you weren't fooling anybody <laughs> He's just cool, you know? He's just cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that one was great because I think reading is important and uh, and that books are magical. So I really liked that episode, even though it was incredibly ham-fisted. There was another incredibly ham-fisted episode that I did not think that was that great, and it was the Guns Are Bad episode. Yeah, and uh, this happens really early on, like episode seven. Yeah, so basically, like... Broadway watches a movie where guns are involved and he's like, man, it's cool. And then he goes over to Elisa's apartment where she's like hung up her gun, like on a holster on like a coat rack in her home. A reasonable thing for a police officer who lives alone to do, by the way, like service weapon in her holster. She took it off her body and hung it up. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Um, she has no children. Like, there's no one, there would be no reason for her to, like, need to lock the gun up in her home where she lives by herself. And then Hudson comes over, and he fucking plays with the gun, and he shoots Elisa in the spine. <laughs> Bro it's, Bro it's Broadway. Broadway, the goofy, because he's, he's playing detective. The episode starts yeah. with him seeing a detective movie, like, five yeah. times. So he takes out the gun and he starts acting like a detective and, and the gun goes off. Has poor trigger discipline. <laughs> the gun goes off and he shoots Elisa. And it's fine. And, and she and, almost and, dies. And and it, it it's um to me, the core anti-gun message of the episode was not what was happening with Elisa. It mm. was what was happening with Xanatos, yeah, Xanatos sells guns because he's a filthy cap, like, he's a filthy war profiteer, and yeah. he... but then some of the guns that he was going to sell to responsible dictators <laughs> were stolen by irresponsible organized crime boss. Yeah, so... He's just gonna put them on the streets, man. So, so eventually the episode ends up with the gargoyles smashing all the guns and failing to help Xanatos get his guns back. And that, yeah. to, me, and the, like, to me, the message of the episode was, like, guns are, 
like dangerous for our cities, especially when organized crime is involved. But I still don't know if the message of the episode was about home gun safety, if it was like about guns and their effect on cities, if it was police, like giving. It was very muddled. It was very muddled and very hand. Also, like for several episodes after that, Hudson, like not sorry, Broadway, it becomes a key part of his hair character that he hates guns. You know, and he's like, what is this? A new type of gun, a new way to hurt people. And then he just breaks it. And then for several episodes afterwards, every time he sees a gun, he's like, well, and it's a really gun, you know, (laughs) if, if the show was trying to be anti for a show that tries to be anti gun in that episode, boy, do they have a lot of guns on that show? They have so many guns on that. Well, in that, like pretty much after that episode, they start. I think that episode, in addition to being a ham-fisted anti-gun episode, was a good way for them to introduce the laser guns, because I wonder if that was some kind of, like, weird censorship thing, you know? Because, like, sometimes cartoons have, like, weird censorship things that happen to them. But do you notice that after that, after that episode, except for, like, Elisa or, like, actual police officers, pretty much everyone's guns are, like, the fancy laser guns? Yeah, they're particle uh, paint. <laughs> they're <laughs> they're, part- they're charged something. particle weapons. They're very different. <laughs> they're very different. So, um, yeah. no, they're particle weapons, and I think I don't know. I can't tell because gargoyles is already gargoyles is this weird transhumanist sorcery hypertech mm-hmm. show where it's got like. It's the 1990s, but also LOL virtual reality is real. Yeah, um, um, like you can like you can do cybernetics, you can do successful like human force mutation, and excuse me, stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I think the message, the overt messaging in the show stays pretty subtle, or morals that they teach are done through interesting plots. Even if it's similar, like love your family, trust each other, respect nature, um, you know, tell the truth. I think compared to a lot of other shows, those morals are communicated in a more subtle way. That's true. And like, I think that most of the morals that like Gargoyles tries to transmit are like very like in our society, like very basic and foundational morals, you know, like they're, they're trying to trend. Like most of the morals are like, tell the truth. Family is important. Friendship is important. Um, talk to people to try and work out your problems with them. Revenge is bad. Hate is bad. Yeah. Revenge is bad. Hate is bad. Yeah. And those are pretty like, at least in, you know, at least since post, in, since the post-war period, I would say at least, those have been really like sort of like basic values of our society. So I don't think it's hard to like, and there's some of the basic values of our society that it's like hard to criticize, you know? I do. It's like, it's like, it's hard to criticize family is important, you know? I do. I do want to give a little bit more space to the, uh, I don't know. I think for a show, they focus a lot on and do a really good job at communicating the issue with cycles of violence. Mm. 
Yeah, you're right, actually. Like, there are a lot of shows that talk about, like, hate is bad, but there aren't many shows of that area that talk about the historical and lasting trends of cycles of violence. Mm-hmm. Because they go, I mean, they talk about feuds that have been going on for a thousand years. For a thousand years. Children inheriting the hate and the sins of their parents and never giving up the cycle of hate and what it does to people. Like, it breaks families apart. It destroys some people's lives. It consumes them so much that they live forever and can't stop fighting. Yeah, like, in, like, the Weird Sisters, the first episode with the Weird Sisters with Demona and Macbeth, they're explicitly talking about, like, they say to Demona... They're like, well, you did this to Macbeth. And he said, she says, because he did this to me. And they say, because you betrayed him, you know, and it's, it's how it's just a cycle of, you know, um, especially with Demona of just always feeling like she has to get one over on somebody, you know, and it just leading to things getting worse and worse and cycles of violence and uh, hatred that just never end. And that's where like Goliath and his crew of gargoyles come in because they're always the ones to break the cycle of violence, even when it's really hard for them to do. Mm -hmm. Because there are many times where Goliath has trouble letting something go or usually Brooklyn has trouble letting something go. And they, they emphasize the importance of the fact that this is just going to keep going. you got to stop it now. And I think that that specific type of revenge is bad discussion mm-hmm. is not only good, but true to life. Like, yeah, you got to end my, cycles. Okay. My instinct is to agree with you and say that that is good. However, here is my contrarian theory about why it is bad. Um... The gargoyles are a visually distinct minority group on Earth who has been violently put upon by human beings uh, as a group for centuries. And in fact, there has even been actual genocidal intent by humans towards gargoyles Um, particularly like the Scottish gargoyles over time. And yet, Demona, who believes that the solution to this problem is to fight back and to be strong is wrong, and Goliath, who thinks the solution is to turn the other cheek and assimilate with the humans, is right. So if we make this a metaphor... For real-world human struggles, maybe it's not actually a good message. So I know I'm being a little bit contrarian with that one. Well, I, but, I, you know, I that, think that you could make that you can make that argument, right? I, I think that because the show deals with such fantastic plots and very literal acts of like violence, rather than general political discourse or action. I, I think that that sort of necessitates, well, we either punch you or we don't. Like, we're either going to kill all humans or we're going to stop you. 
I, I, I think, I guess my point is, is that the extremity of the situation pulls it a little bit further away from being a perfect metaphor. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, like, like I said, it's my instinct to agree, but I just like, that is something that I noticed that like, you could argue that it's sort of playing out this sort of the false uh, Martin versus Malcolm dichotomy. Well, and I mean, I don't know. I think that's a very good point that uh, I think adults catching this, I, I don't know how much it would affect kids. I don't know. I don't know either it's I, because it's, it's so fantastical, you know, that it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to say even as, a, even as an adult, as, as, as an adult who consumed primarily fantasy media as a child, like, what are the hidden lessons and values that I was absorbing from all of that overtly fantastical media where you might think, oh, well, you know, they're not going to get any bad messages out of this. It's just fantasy. Like, I'm not really sure. Well, and my, I guess my point was less about it being fantasy and more about it being like the circumstances of the story. If you pay attention to the show at all, sort of, make the metaphor less perfect. Um, for example, the whole Demona Goliath dichotomy, you end up, you end up with a lot of context and magical events and memory erasing that add layers to that, that it makes sense why they operate the way they do. And it, it makes a societal metaphor less, less uh, not appropriate, but I think less applicable. I don't know. Sure. Like, so you and, kind of almost feel like the show, through being serialized and plot-driven, the show becomes so specific to its internal world that you feel uncomfortable with, like, sort of broad mapping you know, sort of yeah. like mapping a metaphor broadly onto it. And I mean, until you get to season three, which ham fists this sort of civil rights issue, mm -hmm. you you see that most of the negative con things that befall gargoyles are because of very specific, powerful individuals, not because of society writ large. Mm. So I think I think there's a there's a message to be made about the uh, ability of those in power to abuse it and act with impunity, but there isn't the, the societal message is a little bit weaker because so much of what befalls gargoyles is because of weird, fantastical, powerful people rather than societies. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I see what, I see what you mean with that. And like, I definitely buy that. And if I wanted to keep being contrarian with it, I could also say like, well, isn't that also like not a great message? Isn't that also a message that's untrue that like we struggle with in, in our capitalist society that, you know, bad things happen because of bad people and not because the system itself is inherently rotten. You know, um, now that I, I think I goes, understand what you're saying. That I think goes a little. I, I I think that's an appropriate analysis. I think that's a little bit too deep for children to internalize personally. Oh yeah, no, I mean, it isn't. It isn't right because I think we've all internalized that 
as a society. And it's, it's really hard to say where like fundamental, because that's so fundamental to sort of the Western capitalist worldview that it's almost like not even, it's almost not even a value. It's very much like underneath the surface. So it's hard to say from whence do we absorb that, you know, and is not having it in this one particular show going to make any kind of difference, right? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I, I, I can see where you're coming from with that. I think that overall, the show does a pretty good job at trying to handle conflict. I mean, you do get a lot of turn the other cheek stuff, but also, but also the gargoyles fight, like sort of painting the picture that Goliath is sort of this pacifist is totally false. Yeah. It's sort of like, I think they do fight. They defend themselves with like appropriate violence. Yeah. And I think that actually at the end of the day is like, I think the if if there's going to be any message about like fighting and violence in the show i think the main one and which i would you know putting aside being contrary and putting aside trying to like get this deeper analysis into it that i think is a good one um is, is a message that like you should strive for peace you should strive for diplomatic solutions right you should strive to live in harmony but if you are in a situation where you must defend yourself, then defend yourself, you know, defend yourself with an appropriate, with appropriate response. And I think another, another point is often do it for the right reasons. Don't do (laughs) it out of hate. Do it out of like, what is good? Do it out of love. Yeah. Well, do it for your family do it for like, do it for the safety of the ones you love and to be treated correctly, not out of revenge. Or not yeah, out of money. That, like, um, that, like, the sort of, like, the politics of violence to be found in Gargoyles are decidedly not revanchist, right? Like, they're anti-revanchist. And I would say they're also not in favor of preemptive strikes. Because the same people who are really focused on revenge or the same type of people to advocate a preemptive strike in gargoyles. And it sort of shows them as coming from both of those like options coming from the same kind of impulse and both being incorrect. Like the idea that you should like first give people the opportunity to like be good. And then if they are bad, give them the opportunity to change and that when the time the time that is appropriate for like violence and fighting is like when there is a real and measurable threat to yourself or to your loved ones. Yeah, for, no, and and I, you can come in and talk about and with the psychological angle, you could always come in and talk about the effect that violence in media has on kids. But if mm. you if you assume that there's violence in media and that they're like, that's just going to be a thing you could say, yes, it has the potential to cause kids to mimic violent behavior. However, some of the political messages about the violence are the very least positive or in a good productive direction. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this weird, 
Yeah, it's this weird psychological relationship you have with aggression. Because on the one hand, aggression in media can't cause aggression in kids through mimicry, but at the same time, political messages about violence, if they're going to be communicated, should be done in as productive a way as possible. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, like, you know, we're not talking about, like, as much as I love them as a very small child, like PBS shows here. You know, we're not talking about, like, Arthur you know, where if they're going to grapple with the concept of violence and media, they're going to explicitly grapple with the concept of violence and media and show that, like, mimicking things you see on TV makes people get hurt. And it's bad when people get hurt, right? It's not a show that was, like, made with, like, child development specialists on staff. <laughs> you know, it was made to yeah. be entertainment, right? For sure. For sure. And... I, I, um, that's an actual episode of Arthur, by the way, that I remember very distinctly from my childhood. Okay. I, <laughs> I watched a lot of Arthur, but I'm blanking. I'm blanking. That's okay. So I, I think that one aspect that the show does well is communicating what police ought to do rather than mm. what they really do with Elisa yes. specifically. Yes. So I do not at all show police as police really are on the show. Well, okay. And I've been even a little bit. (laughs) I've been thinking about this because I have a lot of people in my life who are like reasonably distrustful of the police. And when I, when I watch shows, I hear a lot of people say it's like, those are unrealistic and they create this false portrayal to people about the police. And I'm sitting here thinking, and I'm like, well, don't we want to model what police ought to do? Because my sense of negativity around current policing came from the ideals I had about how police should act. Mm. So in that respect, when I see people like Elisa, it doesn't make me respect cops now. It makes me want to make them better. It's the same kind of relationship I have with Law & Order SVU when I see those cops and what they do, like turning in other cops for crime and, and like, caring about victims and... Actually holding themselves to a higher standard. And watching their IAB actually punish them for... Or they, like, defendants getting off on, on... violations of their rights by the detectives and them having to deal with that. Seeing all of that, I'm like, none of this is realistic right now, but it does show me what I think they should do. And I think that that is important for people to see. Yeah. And I I think it's complicated when it comes to when you're talking about children, because like, Yeah. Okay. So like I am a middle-class white person and that colors a lot of my perspective, but like my parents were both like working class people when they grew up like working class in a time when all working class people were distrustful of the police. Um, and a lot of the like inherent distrust of the police I have, it comes from my parents. They taught me to be very wary of the police and distrustful of them because they can hurt you. You know, and they and they taught me that basically that like you have to be careful because they could hurt you. But when I was a very small child, 
that's something they taught me when I was a teenager. When I was a very small child, what they taught me about the police was if something bad happens, this is who you go to, you know? And when it comes to very small children, like when it, or just young children of any kind, elementary school age children who don't have the skills or knowledge to like handle any kind of bad situations on their own, like the mechanism we have in our society for them to get help is the police. And I don't, and as much as I have huge issues with the police as an institution, like even the concept of having police in the, in the way that we currently have them, let alone like the injustices of our current policing system, I have a hard time in our society being okay with telling, with giving the message to really little kids that the police are bad. Like, I feel like that's a complication you have to bring in when kids are older, because when kids are really small, they have to know who am I supposed to go to if something bad happens to my mom and dad, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it should be stated for the show specifically, Elisa being a cop is actually a very little part of the show. Like, it's surprisingly minor. Elisa, Elisa's involvement with the gargoyles is like 95% extrajudicial. Extra oh yeah, actually, she breaks so many laws. Right, and, and, and she like, breaks... I don't even know if Elisa remembers how to be a cop without using the gargoyles. Yeah, she they, they break the law a lot, and she... she uh, they also spend a lot of time not in New York, just going around doing stuff. And hey so, man, I lost you. Hello? 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 You there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, we got a technical difficulty. So you were talking about how uh, they break the law a lot? Yeah, so they break the law a lot. And they're not even in New York a lot of the time. So really... Her being, Sometimes they're just in other times or outside of time. There isn't a lot of opportunity for us to see actual police work occurring, and the police work that we do see is either really intense undercover work yeah. or Elisa doing damage control for some magical or Xanatos-related affair. <laughs> yeah, that's Yeah, that's pretty much it. Like some part at some point in season two, Elisa starts going undercover like all the time. And by the way, her like undercover outfits are always like very sexy. <laughs> she makes a convincing criminal. She honestly does. She's great. But OK, so I know that you said that you had, um, you know, we didn't have a ton of time I, to record I'm, tonight. I actually realized this. I do mm -hmm. want to do like another 30 minutes of show. Not tonight. But I do yeah. think we need more because we haven't even gotten into Xanatos or the messages about like wealthy. He's like the mega corporation pseudo state poster boy and uh, Arthurian legends. And uh, we haven't talked about a lot. So I was wrong. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff. We yeah. do have a lot of material to talk about. Um, so this would be a good place for us to finish up. And I, I think if we're like finishing up on morals about the general gargoyle behavior, they model good behavior for teenagers and I think teenage boys. 
I don't know. You could. Um, are like, you talking about like what specifically are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. The importance of being honest, of respecting people, of um, they do kind of fit into this. I don't know, sort of like male fantasy about being a vigilante. Yeah. But and then having, like I don't know. Part with, between them and Angela. But like, that's, I think we can get into that. Like, the, the show, we talk. The show handles that perfectly, though. But it An- does. Where and Angela's just like, Angela's just like, fuck off, guys. They behave badly, but it is meant to show that they are behaving badly. So it's not like in um, the Proud Family where it shows people behaving badly, but isn't doing it with like a critical lens. Yeah, exactly. So uh, morally, I think the show does a pretty good job at a lot of stuff, despite the ham-fisted episodes about reading. They're still great. I mean, you know, it's Disney. It's a Disney show. You're going to get that, right? Exactly. We'll probably get it with recess as well. Oh, I'm certain. (laughs) So this is a good place for us to end, dear listeners. So I, I wish you a good night and I bid you adieu. This has been Chris. And I've been Paige, and this has been Animates. Please follow us at Animates on Twitter.com. We also have a Facebook page called Animates Podcast. Uh, If you have burning thoughts, theories, questions, suggestions that can't be contained to Twitter or Facebook posts, you can always email us. Our email is animateease at gmail.com with the numeral eight in there. And of course, if you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. It'll really help other people find the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.